My name is Dan Dick, the host of Church Matters. Exactly two years ago this month, we broadcast an interview with Stuart Murray recorded on location in England. Stuart Murray is the author of The Naked Anabaptist, a book that reflects Anabaptism back to North American Anabaptists and discusses the appeal of Anabaptism in the post-Christian United Kingdom. Of course, Mennonites are just one group included in the wider category of Anabaptists, and so for the purpose of this program, listeners can just as easily exchange Mennonite for Anabaptist. Many theologians, religious researchers, and analysts have said that Canada is just a few steps behind the secularization that has already occurred to a large degree in the United Kingdom and the rest of Europe. Indeed, surveys in recent years indicate that Canadian Christians now define regular church attendance as twice per month. Stuart Murray is here with us in the studio today. Welcome to Winnipeg, Stuart. Thank you. My first time here. Good to be here. In preparation for our conversation today, I invited listeners of Church Matters and readers of the Naked Anabaptist to submit questions for you, Stuart. These questions will shape our conversation today. Now, it's been three years since your book was first released in 2010. What are some key highlights that you've learned so far from responses to the Naked Anabaptist? I think the uh, main response to the Naked Anabaptist so far has been one of surprise at the level of interest in North America. Uh, It was a book that was written primarily uh, for the UK context as a a straightforward introduction to the Anabaptist tradition. And the uh, popularity in North America has been uh, very surprising to us. I've been encouraged by quite a number of emails from North American uh, Mennonites and others who have uh, found the book helping them to reconnect with their own tradition. So I'm thinking primarily of uh, Mennonites in their 20s and 30s who grew up Mennonite and who have become disconnected from the tradition for a variety of reasons. And the Naked Anabaptist seems to have helped them to re-engage with the very heart of their tradition. I think the other thing that has surprised us has been the interest in other parts of the world with the translations of the book into uh, five or six different languages now. Uh, So that's been surprising and uh, encouraging. You have defined Christendom as a time during which Christians had organized themselves into a powerful institution that could impose its beliefs and practices on society. A post-Christendom society, then, is a world in which Christianity is no longer the dominant civil religion. It has gradually assumed values and culture and worldviews that are not necessarily Christian. Post-Christendom values may be influenced by other religious traditions or even no religious tradition. It's a time in which Christianity has lost its monopoly in civil society. Now, here in Canada, we consume and are influenced by a lot of United States-based media. And from what I can tell, Christendom values are alive and well in the politics and in the issues uh, down south, such as gun control and health care and so on. There are pockets of that in Canada, too. Is Christendom really dead or is it simply reinventing itself? I have used the language of post-Christendom not to claim that Christendom is dead, but that it is dying. Um, I'm convinced that Christendom is on the way out, uh, right across Western culture, that we are uh, losing the uh, dynamics that have characterized the relationship between uh, Christianity and culture over uh, a millennium and a half. The United States is, I think, at the moment an exception to the trend, um, but I'm not sure it will be for much longer. Uh, There is considerable debate about that, with some people suggesting that the US might be a long-term exception, that it will not go the same way as uh, other parts of Western culture. Uh, Others, uh, particularly those, I think, working in the cities, are suggesting that many of the trends 
uh, are the same in the US as they are already in Europe. Uh, perhaps the US is uh, a generation behind, but heading in the same direction. Christendom has a capacity to reinvent itself. And so the language of neo-Christendom that is being used by some uh, makes some sort of sense. Um, but I'm not at all convinced that uh, Christendom will survive uh, in any of the various forms that it's been taking. I think we're heading into post-Christendom. That said, then, what are some indicators we should look for in our own congregations to discern if our faith communities are entering or are already in a post-Christendom phase? I'm in some ways more interested in the indicators in our culture than within our congregations. It seems to me that we need to be uh, understanding what's going on in our, our wider culture, recognizing the way in which um, a growing number of people are so far alienated from the churches and know so little about the Christian faith that we really are moving into a very different mission context. The challenge for our congregations is how we engage with that, whether we see this as a tremendous threat and turn in on ourselves trying to preserve what we have, or whether we see this as a, a wonderful opportunity for a new kind of mission and reinvent ourselves as missionary communities that are willing to uh, learn in fresh ways what it means to share the good news in a very changing context. So for me, post-Christendom is a tremendous opportunity, but it's going to require us to uh, reimagine what church looks like in this context. But what values of Christendom might be entering into a congregation, things that we just assume uh, to be Christian that aren't necessarily so? Well, I think we have a legacy of uh, institutional maintenance from the Christendom era. Uh, many congregations have been used to thinking of mission as simply attracting people into church buildings, into church programs. Uh, so the understanding of mission has been very much about come to us as if we are somehow normal within our society. In post-Christendom, church going is not normal. Uh, there is no particular reason why people should come into our church buildings or be interested in our programs. And so reconfiguring mission as uh, going rather than coming is, I think, part of the, uh, the change of instinct that we're going to need. If Christendom then is collapsing, do you see a corresponding need or push to collapse denominationalism? Is there any justification to sustain a whole denomination based on Anabaptist or Mennonite thought? I think I'd want to differentiate between denominations and denominationalism. Uh, in a post-Christendom environment where we are a minority, uh, the differentiation into different tribes and denominations uh, somehow at loggerheads with each other or doing things differently probably has little justification. I don't think we're going to see the demise of denominations anytime soon, um, but if we could see ourselves as tribes within a single nation, uh, cooperating together, partnering together, that might be very helpful. We are, I think, moving into a post-denominational phase in the sense that many younger Christians have little or no allegiance to a particular denomination. They may be very loyal to a congregation, but they don't particularly mind what brand or what label that congregation has. Uh, but I do think that denominations, if they can rebrand themselves as missionary movements, um, have a significant future. In our current context, the Anabaptist Church remains an outlier on the fringe of the mainstream church, even here in North America. What opportunities are available to a church on the margins that may not be possible for a dominant church? I think a church or a denomination which has a history of being on the margins should be better equipped for the marginality that's going to be the experience of all Christians in post-Christendom. I think there is less to adjust to. I think the struggle of moving from majority status to minority status is, is avoided or at least is different. So fewer pretensions, uh, less of a sense that we need to be involved in everything, doing everything. 
I think there is the prospect of making careful choices about what we're involved in and what we're not involved in without the old imperial sense that somehow we need to dominate the whole of society and be involved in absolutely everything. I think marginality does offer uh, a better perspective for our engagement with post-Christendom. In 2 Timothy 3.12, we read, Indeed, all who want to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. How do you understand that scripture in light of the increasing secularization in places like Europe and Australia and Canada? Are Christians already so marginalized, say, in Europe, that they are really being persecuted for their faith? A good friend of mine who's a biblical scholar has worked quite a bit with that text and has noticed how very poorly biblical scholars have dealt with that throughout the Christendom era. This verse does not make any kind of sense in a Christendom context where Christians, far from being persecuted, were often persecutors. It's, I think, only in post-Christendom that we're beginning to grapple with the realities of this text uh, in the way that perhaps they were in the early church. The difference between marginality and persecution, though, is something that I would want to emphasize pretty strongly. Uh, Christians in the West are becoming marginalized. I think it is uh, extremely unhelpful and indeed offensive to use the language of persecution at this stage. Uh, Brothers and sisters across the world are being persecuted for their faith. Uh, There is a vast difference between that and the loss of privilege that Christians are complaining about in the West. You have a new book out called The Power of All, Building a Multi-Voice Church. Tell me, what is a multi-voice church? One of the convictions that I find within the Anabaptist tradition is that a church is a participative community rather than a place for entertainment or for consumption. The early Anabaptist communities in the 16th century were places where the expectation was that everybody would participate in a variety of ways using the gifts that God had given to them. And as I read uh, the history of many movements, many renewal movements in church history, 1 Corinthians 14 seems to be a key passage. It's a passage that talks about a community where many different voices are heard, many different gifts are shared with the community. That's what I mean by a multi-voice church. And I am convinced that in a post-Christendom world where we will have uh, increasing bivocational ministry, reducing resources, we need to move towards a more multi-voice understanding of church. I believe it's a healthier form of church. I believe it's a more biblical form of church. I think it's essential also if we're going to become missionary communities. One of our Church Matters listeners observed in reading this title, The Multi-Voice Church, that the book seems to address newer and smaller gatherings of people, perhaps 30 or less persons, and wanted to know how it applies to larger settings such as 200 or 250 people or even more. Yes, I think the practices of a multi-voice church are much easier to develop within a smaller community. Uh, And my own preference would be for the multiplication of smaller communities rather than the growth of huge churches. I think in a post-Christian world that makes a lot more sense, uh, both in terms of community formation and nurturing and also in terms of mission. But I do hear of uh, much larger churches that are drawn towards a multi-voice way of operating and are experimenting with ways of developing practices uh, within their own communities. I think it's much harder work. Uh, If I'm honest, I'm not sure it's worth it having huge churches that you have to keep on uh, compensating for in a variety of ways. But uh, I'm encouraged that some larger churches are also moving in this direction. You've already hinted then that there's some risk of being a multi-voice church in a large setting. Are there other dangers of being a multi-voice church that we should be aware of and address in some way regardless of the size of the group? 
Yes, I don't think that a church can simply adopt multi-voice practices over a weekend. I think this is a process that it needs the retraining of congregations and leaders. Uh, it needs the development of an ethos of welcome, of acceptability, of openness. Uh, there are practices that will make for a healthy multi-voice church. And so there are real dangers if a church doesn't develop that ethos and uh, doesn't develop those practices. Uh, one, obviously, is chaos. Uh, many voices can be a cacophony rather than an orchestra. You've spent some considerable time traveling in Canada and in the United States, meeting and getting to know North American Mennonites. One of our listeners feels that Mennonite periodicals are taking a decided turn towards seeing social justice and creation care as the center of the gospel. This listener is concerned that this represents a shift away from Jesus as the center. Where will that put Canadian Mennonites 20 years into the future? Yes, I think I've picked that up from my reading of uh, Mennonite periodicals, uh, and I would share that concern that's been expressed by the listener. Um, I think that many Anabaptists in the United Kingdom would be uh, concerned about creation care and involved in social justice, but I don't think there's anything distinctively Anabaptist about that. And it seems to me if we lose the distinctive Anabaptist emphasis on the centrality of Jesus, we will be in real trouble. Uh, so I think we need to see creation care and social justice as part of a much broader understanding of mission with uh, Jesus at the centre. Stuart, this next question has two linked parts. Anabaptists have long held to an idea of accountability in the church. Is it realistic in contemporary culture to practice mutual admonition and discipline? And, if you think so... How would a church go about introducing this practice? I think it is countercultural, but I do think it is realistic and I think it's essential. As we move into a post-Christendom world, we will need communities that are responsible to and for each other. I don't think heroic individualism is the way forward. I think we need to be in communities where we can help one another make uh, tough decisions, where we can help one another make countercultural choices, and that we will need uh, processes in place to enable us to, to do that. My wife and I, uh, during January, in our own church in Bristol in England, uh, taught on this subject and encouraged the members of the church to meet together and to look at the key passage in Matthew 18 and to ask the question, how are we going to work through disagreements? How are we going to be disciples of one another? So I don't think it's something you can impose on a church, but I think it's the beginning of a conversation about what kind of community do we want to be and how can we help each other to remain as disciples of Jesus in a world with fewer supports for faith. Here in Canada, Mennonites are being challenged to maintain and support wider church structures, financial support for regional and national church ministry, even activities like this program. Um, international ministries and home-based Christian formation ministries, all of this support has been trending downward for over a decade now. The demand for ministry far outstrips the financial support for it. Meanwhile, we hear that the appeal of Anabaptists is growing worldwide. How is Anabaptism being financially supported and resourced in your context of the UK, and what future do you see for the wider church structures in Canada and elsewhere? Does Anabaptists even have a future if the financial support continues to erode? The Anabaptist network in the UK uh, is a network which is run by volunteers, has no office, no overheads, uh, it requires a very minimal amount of financial support. So this is not an issue that impacts us particularly. 
the London Mennonite Centre, which has been a more institutional expression of Anabaptism in the UK, is in the process of uh, reinventing itself at the moment and developing a business plan which will, will enable it to be self-supporting rather than dependent on uh, the gifts of North American Mennonites as it has been over several decades. So I think we're moving into a situation where sustainability is looking quite promising. I think the wider question about the role of denominations is something which many different groups are facing at the moment. Certainly in Britain, we've had uh, major financial uh, concerns expressed by a number of denominations, some of which are restructuring as a result of that. I do think that in the light of a post-Christendom world with fewer resources, denominations will need to simplify and streamline what they do. They will not be able to do all they've currently done or been doing over many years. So I think there is a role for a national or regional church body, but it needs to be rethought and reimagined, and I think it will be a lot simpler in the future. Spreading the net even wider now, we've recently heard that the Pope has resigned, the Catholic Church in Ireland seems to be imploding, the Anglican Church has been struggling with affirming women bishops and so on. How are UK Anabaptists connecting with issues of the wider church, and where are they landing on these matters? Are they able to speak an encouraging word into these situations? We have... Anabaptists in all the major denominations in the UK, uh, rather than being in Mennonite churches or in separate institutions, uh, Anabaptists are spread across the denominations. And so different members of the network will be speaking into their own denominations and into these issues. The Anabaptist network itself is a very small and somewhat insignificant organisation in national terms. And so any voice that we have will be a very small voice and won't necessarily be, be heard. But we do attempt from time to time to engage in some of these conversations. Uh, so, for example, on the issue of uh, women bishops, which has been uh, a problem for the Anglican Church in, in recent days, uh, our main contribution would not primarily be to affirm the role of women, but to disaffirm the role of bishops and the hierarchical structures of the church. And so quite often on these issues, we're looking to be provocative and to explore other ways of looking at the issue rather than simply taking sides. Coming back to Anabaptists now, Mennonites have had a presence in the UK for over 60 years that began with the London Mennonite Centre in 1952. You've already referenced that. My colleague, Vic Thiessen, served as director of the London Mennonite Centre for several years, and he says that, quote, almost everywhere you look in the UK Christian scene, there are signs of new life and new enthusiasm. The influence of the London Mennonite Centre and the UK Anabaptist Network lies at the very heart of this new movement, unquote. He also references Greenbelt, an annual and strongly Anabaptist-influenced Christian arts festival that now attracts over 26,000 people of all ages in a country where Christianity is waning. Now, Vic isn't here to respond to your response. I wish he were. But the question I have for you is, has the Mennonite presence in the UK these past decades really been that influential? The Anabaptist Network and the London Mennonite Centre represent a relatively small number of Christians in the United Kingdom. I think we have more influence than our numerical strength warrants. The Anabaptist tradition is beginning to inform people in many different traditions, and that's encouraging. However, we are only one of many different traditions and many different influences. There are exciting new things happening, but we are still in the midst of decline as post-Christendom takes effect within Europe. And I think it's important that we are realistic about the situation, uh, encouraged by the things that we do see happening, but not overstating uh, how much progress is being made at present. 
Stuart, is there anything else at all you'd like to add to our conversation before we draw this to a close? I think I would want to emphasize something that I've said many times when I've been in North America before, which is the importance of ongoing relationships between the the new Anabaptists of England and Europe and the older Mennonite Anabaptist communities in North America. We value the history, the tradition, the experience. We are in danger of becoming a free-floating, idealistic group if we don't keep in contact with those communities. So we are grateful and we hope to continue to uh, develop relationships here. Please do pray for us. We are in a very challenging situation. Uh, Many of us are excited about the opportunities of post-Christendom, but we find ourselves in a situation with limited resources and with many who are discouraged by the seeming lack of progress for the gospel. Uh, Please do pray for persistence, for imagination and for faithfulness. Stuart, thanks so much for coming in and tackling these questions for us today. Thank you. That wraps up today's episode. Thanks to all our listeners who sent in questions for Stuart. Join us next month for another challenging edition of Church Matters. We have over 20,000 listeners of Church Matters. In 2012 alone, Church Matters podcasts were downloaded nearly 6,000 times. We're grateful for each and every listener. Thank you for your support. To continue hearing Church Matters, please consider supporting this program with a gift to Mennonite Church Canada, or consider supporting Michael Nims, who will be a new Mennonite worker in the UK shortly. To give, just call 1-866-888-6785 or visit mennonitechurch.ca and click on the donate link. My name is Dan Dick and you've been listening to Church Matters. Know that you are called, equipped and sent to be the church in the world today. Thanks for listening. As you go out from here, may the Lord go with you. The face of God shine on you every day. We are sent by God wherever we are living, salt and light as people of the way.